Journalist H.R. Venkatesh says he's always been restless. So I started as a business journalist, then I became a sports journalist, then I became a general news uh, journalist, then I became an anchor, then I went to the desk. So restlessness is part of my, uh, of my career. These days, he runs Media Buddhi, a media literacy newsletter from the publication Boom Fact Check. It explores issues like misinformation and polarization. This is the In Old News podcast which covers stories of journalists and journalism from around the world. I am Sanshay Biswas. And I'm Manon Versho. In this episode, we spoke to Venkatesh about his interest in media literacy and how audiences engage with journalism in a digital era. We start with how the Media Buddhi newsletter has helped him think about media literacy and how it can be a vertical within journalism and not just something limited to schools and universities. Media Buddhi uh, has many different aspects to it. It's got training, it's got content, it's got um, videos, right? When I say content, I mean text and it's got videos. So we've done all three. Um, and I would say the text and the videos will are, are part of media literacy journalism. Media literacy has always been the domain of educators and universities. But I think just like, you know, explanatory journalism is kind of a genre of journalism or solutions journalism is a way of framing journalism. I think that media literacy journalism is important in today's world. What I was really curious about is kind of the origin story of Media Buddhi. I think there are many steps that led to it. The first step I think would be that I was an ICFJ Knight Fellow and Mm -hmm. uh, I was interested in the whole uh, polarization phenomenon, which I'd been interested in since 2013 and 14. And um, I had tried to deal with it in a startup I created called Nita Data, but um, I couldn't go anywhere with it. And I was, I I just come out of Nita Data after a year of not earning anything and spending money on it. And I was working with ICFJ <clears throat> when the world kind of took notice after the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. And so ICFJ uh, sent me to get trained in in uh, fact checking. Uh, pretty much pretty soon after that and so there I was I was trained to be a fact checker but I wasn't interested in being a fact checker but I was interested in the phenomenon called fake news and I also had the time as a night fellow uh, to be to catch up on the news to do some thinking you know dream a little and all that jazz Uh, and so I I came up with um, a framework uh, that I called the 5P framework Mm -hmm. uh, to deal with uh, the phenomenon of misinformation. And I realized thinking through it that um, fact checking was an antidote to false news or fake news or misinformation, disinformation, whatever word you want to use, but we needed a vaccine. And I got interested in media literacy as a a concept. And the, the way I think about things is, I always think about nice names for something. And so I started thinking about a name and the word buddhi came to my head. I got excited. Uh, You know, this is 2018. And then I went off to Stanford for this journalism fellowship where I came across this guy called Sam Weinberg, Professor Sam Weinberg. Um, He's kind of the leading authority in media literacy, at least media literacy 2.0, which is post 2016. And I and it was still in the back of my mind because I could have I, I wanted to do many things when I left Stanford. But it so happened that I came back home to India in 2019 in July and uh, 
I went to one or two places to find a job because I wanted to earn a good pay packet. Um, you know, I spent six years doing six different things. Mm. So I thought I needed to find a an organization where I can settle down and uh, put everything I have learned to, you know, in operation. At Media Rumble, I ran into Govindraj Etiraj and I told him, look, can we do something on media literacy? And it was a two minute conversation. He said, yeah, 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 sure. Of course, it helped that Govind was my first boss um, okay. and uh, all of that. So those those things matter as well. So we started Media Buddhi. That's the genesis, really, that I wanted to fight misinformation, but not as a fact checker. That's the short answer. What sort of goes behind the decision is sort of like what's going to go into text versus what's going to go into video? Are you trying to reach different audiences or fill some gaps? But I don't work in, in a traditional vertical, okay? Uh, and I haven't done so in a while. So my theory of change, you want to call it, uh, in journalism is that uh, find an idea that you want to talk about, write about it. If you can't find an editor and you can't go through like multiple revisions, put it out in the world, okay? And once it has been refined through interaction with people, then recycle that whole thing into a different medium. Right. So um, I want to think about and, and and the thing is, a lot of the stuff I write about in media, in media buddhi is stuff that I am thinking, but I don't know what to uh, I need. The, the act of writing mm -hmm. helps me think mm -hmm. and the act of writing creates a, a frame or a way of looking at the problem, whatever yeah. that issue is, uh, whether it is polarization or whether it is Wikipedia, you know, anything. Right. Um, and so that's the first step. So I'll write it out and I'll push it out through the newsletter. One or two people, that's all it really need. I really need actually one or two people inevitably will get back to me saying, oh, this is nice. This is not so good. You, you know, you're stupid, you know, something like that. And then I refine what the, you know, my thinking on it and I put it out as a video. So it is all informed by do something, but don't waste it on one uh, medium, repeat it. I, I really, I, I, I take, a, for example, I, I like uh, what hip hop artists do. Mm -hmm. uh, they use a lot of repetition in their verses. Mm -hmm. And I think repetition is very important. So I, I feel very comfortable in doing the same story five times. You also talked about like news versus journalism, like taking it slow kind of is important. How did you get there? <laughs> is I guess my basic question. I don't want to give a really long answer. So let me just say that I started my career in 2001 mm -hmm. and I was in TV news and I rode the TV wave and, yeah. uh, you know, by 2008, I was like really senior uh, mm -hmm. at CNN IBM. Um, but I also was very um, irritated by what TV news was in 2008. It was irritating for me to be, to do the same kind of uh, news. I, I, I felt there was a lot of, yeah. There were a lot of uh, issues with it. Uh, and so I didn't want to um, do, I didn't want to anchor anymore. That was basically it. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the origin of uh, trying something else. And I've always been very restless. So I started as a business journalist. Then I became a sports journalist. Then I became a general news uh, journalist. Then I became an anchor. Then I went to the desk. So restlessness is part of my, uh, of my career. Uh, it's it's kind of hidden because I spent nine years at CNN IBM, of which one year I went to study and I came back. So people don't realize how restless my career has been. Um, and then in 2010, uh, a friend of mine, when I returned from my one year study break, 
he told me that there is this guy called Jeff Jarvis who's written a book. It's called What Would Google Do? Uh, you should read it. So I read it and my mind got really, I mean, my mind was blown. And I was already, uh, had been blogging on uh, blog, blogger, blogspot yeah. uh, for, for a few years. And I, I, by the way, I had, I like to think I had India's first podcast as well. Mm-hmm. So I had a podcast called News Junkie Podcast at right. CNN, uh, IBN, now CNN News 18. Um, and I did some seven or eight episodes, but it came out in 2007 and eight. And the problem at that point was that uh, we had the equipment and all of that to do a good podcast, but we didn't have a distribution thing in place. Mm-hmm. So I really got into the ethic of try different things out. Okay, try it for a month, try it for six months, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And and if it doesn't work, reject it, move on. And And so... The voice in my head that says you are in, you don't complete things and you're a, you're a failure and you're a serial, serial starter of things yeah. and all of that. I learned to deal with that voice. Yeah. Okay. So that allowed me to try different things out. And then I realized as a regular journalist, I, I won't be able to do all of these things. So six years later, I was at CUNY uh, for a few months. I met uh, Jeremy Kaplan. Jeff was my teacher uh, and uh, it was great to have him as my teacher. So. Everything I learned got reinforced. So today I'm the kind of guy who will try a dozen different things out. And most things won't be won't be known to uh, people. But I'll try it out and I'll do it once and I'll learn something. I'll learn something and I'll, I'll refine it and I'll put it, put the learning to something else. So I guess it's very natural for me to be like this. And uh, a regular uh, reporting job or a regular editing job would not give me the time. As like the training and research director, what does like a day-to-day look like? So the idea is to create a a lot of training modules and workshops, which we've been doing. um, And also get into some of the research aspects of misinformation. So, uh, you know, put together little reports on uh, the patterns of misinformation we're seeing and all of that. But really what has happened is on a daily basis, the my job description uh, involves training and research but i do a lot more as well so i've kind of morphed into a guy who who uh, of course i created and run media buddhi uh, mm-hmm. and i also do training and research uh, so we put together many workshop modules and more are forthcoming um, um, and so we've experimented with uh, in person zoom training and then using a platform to create a training module uh, we've experimented with free, we've experimented with getting other people to pay uh, us to train other people. And we're also experimented with directly uh, getting payment and things like that. So those, there are those. And the third thing I would say that I'm doing at uh, Boom is I, I, you know, we're trying different things out. We tried out a membership program and it's, a, it's an ongoing process. Uh, we're, we're trying to... Um, create a meaningful um, um, connection with our readers and users. Uh, and so I, I worked on the membership program. I worked with the membership puzzle project, uh, mm-hmm. them for help and so on and so forth. Uh, we also uh, work on different um, pro- mini projects within, which is based on using data and processes to inform our decision-making on on certain things. So we So essentially, Sometimes I feel my job at Boom is uh, like a handyman, uh, but it's not unlike a handyman. I don't know how to fix everything. It's just that I just do many things. So a handyman is a good example. Four or five years ago, I had a 
three potential options, uh, paths to choose. One was the uh, become the uh, editor, and I was the uh, one of the founding editors at the Quint. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, so there, there was that option. Uh, the other option was to um, do something behind the scenes and not. So I've been an anchor type. So I've been both behind the scenes and on on the camera. But the third thing is what I I prefer the most, which is be an individual and do your own thing. Uh, I, I mean, I, I like the idea of managing people and all of that, but the phase at which I am in my career, I just prefer to do things on my own. Mm -hmm. so this job allows me to do that. Is there a kind of like a cautionary tale or a tip that you would want to share, like at least aspiring entrepreneurial journalists? So when you're reporting, uh, there are certain, in a, in a situation where you're not allowed to report, uh, go under the radar uh, and you can, you know, come back and tweet if you feel like later on. So that's like very contextual and very practical piece of advice. On the strategic uh, kind of uh, longer term kind of advice, I would say is if you want to stick around as a journalist in the long term, uh, you need many things to help you out when, when things will go sideways. You need to have a good working relationship with, you know, with, uh, with a media organization. If you're a freelancer, you know, who yeah. might back you or who may not entirely drop you. We know many journalists who did reporting for a particular media organization, but that organization, once they got sued, once there was a legal case, they dropped the journalist. You know, it, it seems to be the norm rather than the exception, which is sadly the case. So what does an individual journalist do? And many people learn the hard way um, uh, that, you know, once you should know people who can help you. Uh, this guy, Aniruddha Behel, mm -hmm. uh, he wrote this book uh, recently, I think about uh, seven, eight months ago, investigative journalist who famously broke a lot of stories, including the match fixing uh, scandal of the 99 of 1999. So he, at one point, you know, he spent eight years going to a courts on a, on almost on a, like a regular basis. Okay. Every week or Tariq pe Tariq kind of situation, you know? So um, uh, he said that the only thing that helped me was I had 300 numbers on my phone. Yeah. Okay. So lawyers, people from civil society, other journalists, all of that. So the more you report, the more you cultivate relationships, which will help you later on. I mean, in the absence of any protection from the state or in the absence of any protection from organizations, the only thing you can fall back on is protection from the community or it helps to have a really supportive family. It's just funny on your own, you might feel isolated and cut off, but you just need the help of the support of three or four people. And then that's it. You know, you can take on the entire world mm -hmm. once you feel supported. Yeah. So that's what I tell people. It's a long-term game that you're playing. Don't uh, uh, look for impact. Uh, don't look for uh, uh, immediate uh, noise. So, I, you know, for, for impact, I think, the uh, good advice is uh, do your work through your reporting and not necessarily through your tweets uh, mm -hmm. and things like that. Because and don't and try to do all the work um, so that it stands the test of time um, and you collect all data. And the world that we live in, uh, the burden of proof is much higher on a journalist. So preserve everything, like preserve your notebooks, preserve your digital trail, everything. Don't delete find a way to organize it. So this is one question you folks asked and there are multiple answers. So yes. I'll, I'll just 
stop there. Um, as someone who has observed very closely the journalism space um, and has been involved in entrepreneurial journalism um, on many occasions, what are some trends that you notice or, or do you feel like you are you expecting certain new developments in the in the coming year? What do you think the future of the coming do you years? Do think the landscape is changing? Yeah. yeah. This is your, this is the future of journalism question, right? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> It's the obligatory future of question. <laughs> what trends am I seeing? I think the trends I'm seeing will only deepen. Um, one is, um, I think English language journalism has its place and that, that place is going to continue to shrink. I feel uh, the language space is going to be even more important in the coming years. And we see that trend uh, changing. Um, I mean, in 2014 was... 2013, 2012, 2014 was a perfect time to start uh, a digital and or mm-hmm. digital only newsroom. Yeah. And we had many people who started in English. Uh, the years of 2016, 17, 18, and thereafter was was the right time to start something in Hindi. Mm-hmm. You know, and in the last few years, really, I mean, that is actually a trend that's accelerated. People have started realizing that the real growth and maybe uh, opportunities for uh, making a sustainable income from journalism comes from what is known as a TTMK market, which is Telugu, Tamil, Malayalam, Kannada. Yeah. Um, so I see those trends really uh, changing. And the other mega trend, of course, is more people are going to have a mobile smartphone in their hands. And uh, those people may not necessarily know, uh, you know, how to deal with the information they get. Yeah. Like, there's, there might be the tendency to believe everything you, you, you get because it looks, uh, you know, clean or it looks uh, it looks great or it's funky or whatever it is. And, and so I think uh, I would see the need for uh, training people to consume news is also going to increase. Uh, there might not be opportunities to monetize such a thing, but definitely there will be opportunities to do, do this coming in the future. And... Um, uh, I think the potential for misinformation is huge and continues to be huge uh, going forward as well. So I don't see anything changing. And uh, <clears throat> But there are some positive things as well. I feel more and more diverse voices are going to come into the mix uh-huh. uh, and more and more publications that cater to specific communities <clears throat> will, uh, will be born and will continue and they will thrive. So I feel that decentralization is really the theme for the future in this space. And we are also seeing uh, with the whole creator economy and all of that, uh, uh, the combination of individual journalists and the tools that you have at your disposal as a potential creator can create the opportunity to have an individual business as well. So I see that increasing as well. Of course, there'll be a huge expansion before this consolidation inevitably because not everybody is going to be able to uh, sustain an independent media business. Uh, but I see that happening a lot as well. So mm-hmm. I would say the language space, then technology-fueled fl- uh, decentralization uh, and uh, individuals turning into uh, creators uh, in journalism as well and increase in that. So these are like mega trend, three mega trends. The fourth mega trend is, of course, uh, the increase uh, potential increase in misinformation, not mm-hmm. decrease in the near term. I would say we can see that over the next year, year, couple of years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think more newsrooms will start taking up um, 
media literacy initiatives, much like the one that you've started? Do you see that happening already? Yeah, yeah, I see it happening already. I mean, um, even in, um, uh, you know, a lot of universities are also get, getting more aggressive. Mm-hmm. There are other newsrooms like um, like us who have started doing media literacy. Uh, and so it is only going to pick up pace, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in the language space, I, I see it uh, picking up as well a lot. Mm-hmm. And the audience that you're interacting with a lot, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of interest from journalists. Um, do you have a mix of like a journalist audience and a general public audience? Be, Are you aiming like, to... Or is it mostly people in policy or who work in and around policy who are interested in media literacy? Or do you see more interest from across the board? I can speak about audiences at length and the need for building community and all of that stuff. But for the audience of my own work, it's basically a mix of people in the journalism space and adjacent professions. That's one bucket. The second bucket is uh, people who see real value in what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So who believe that it makes a huge difference personally in their lives. And then the third really is uh, people in my satellite, um, you know, friends, family, friends of friends, friends of my colleagues. That's, That's really how it goes. I'd say there are three large buckets, at least that's what I think. And it's the middle bucket that I'm really interested in focusing on, which which is people who think that without this, my life is not complete. Mm-hmm. No, I'm and really um this kind of thing that I'm doing forces me to ask this question: am I making a difference to people's lives? Like on a daily basis. If I'm not, then I I won't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I, I and you know, so it's very important that I grow this middle bucket mm-hmm. and get more people involved who believe that I'm making a difference in their lives. The newsletter kind of sounds like it's been uh, an important feedback mechanism also, not just a distribution. And you kind of started around the time uh, when like the newsletter space was really heating up. Yeah, and like right before all the lockdown really started. <laughs> and um, now people have it on their Twitter profiles and think it's becoming like a um, your personal blog kind of a thing. The way you perceive the newsletter, has it changed since you started or is it kind of more or less remained the same? Um, it's more or less remained the same because um, this is my second newsletter. I had a newsletter with Neta, Neta Data, which I used, which I, which I used to send using MailChimp. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've studied uh, the several case studies on how newsletters make a difference mm-hmm. to both the journalistic organization and to the people it is being sent to. Yeah. Uh, and so I was pretty clear what I wanted the newsletter to do when I started the whole thing. See, uh, there is this misnomer with newsletters. Uh, at least I think it's changed now, but it was seen as a, a, a device to generate traffic yeah. to your website. Mm-hmm. Right? But uh, it's now I think it's more and more people are, are accepting that a newsletter is not necessarily that. Uh, it can be that, but it is equally a, a product on its own. So yeah. uh, the purpose of clicking on a newsletter is to open it and read it and close it. Not clicking on a link and going to the website or yeah. doing something else. So I think that I was very clear about. I knew that it would be a product on its own, which is why I really liked the Substack, which is it was both a newsletter and a website at the same time. We were listening to a podcast yesterday, actually. Um, Nilay Patel was interviewing the former editor-in-chief of Vox, uh, Lauren, Lauren Williams, and she's launched her new initiative. 
Um, and there was sort of like a conversation about how much social platforms and Google have really influenced how journalists do their job. Like SEO has changed how journalists write. Yeah. Um, Facebook has influenced how people do videos. YouTube has done the same. Do you think that that sort of plays a role in how misinformation is spread? In, not, not in terms of like the fake news that people propagate on social media, but in terms of um, making everything look like a template, like yeah. everything kind of looks similar. Yeah. I mean, I, devoid see, of... yeah, absolutely. There is a connection there. See, misinformation through the through the media space. I mean, the big word that's uh, bandied around a lot is the word trust, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think we have a major trust problem. And when we write news for uh, algorithms and not for people, uh, when we write a headline for an algorithm and not for people, uh, we are contributing to the breakdown in trust right for an seo headline you've got to it has to be under 70 characters you've got to write it in a certain way and you've got to use keywords and all of that uh, it's sometimes it's fine but in most cases i i find that it's it's not being written for people uh, and that creates a trust problem and that leads to uh, that has a, a adjacency or a connection to the rise of misinformation as well so I, I do think we should, uh, so the, I think the, the in, if you leave the first years of uh, media organizations on the internet, uh, the first major trend was the search trend and then there was a social trend. And in the last few, few years there's been the subscription trend, what I call the three S's, search, social and subscription. Along with that, there's membership and all of that. And I think, uh, you know, um, uh, We'll, we will see a few more trends like this. We'll cycle through a few more trends. But I think the, we will settle on a, uh, on a, on a, on a formula that, that creates real value for people as opposed to feeding the algorithm or something else. I think we're in the middle of a historic re-evaluation of journalism and the purpose of journalism. And so uh, maybe it's going to take another five years. Maybe it's going to take another 10 years. Um, or maybe it's always going to be like this ever-changing, um, you know, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get better at uh, making sense of new trends uh, driven by technology and uh, uh, behaviors that have been changed by technology. I think we'll get a better sense of how to keep the message of journalism alive. And so maybe five years later, we will have journalism in a form that uh, is not recognizable today. Like already we have that, right? Mm -hmm. Someone was talking about, for example, the whole idea of news deserts. Uh, it's, a, it's a term that became really popular in the United States because all these local newspapers were forced to shut down and they were dying out. And that's been a trend for the last, I don't know, 15 years yeah. or more. Um, and so when you apply that lens to India and when you think about it, you have many communities where you never had a newspaper in the first place. Right. Uh, so it, it's an it was a pre-existing news desert. It was never a green place, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, the SMS is a, is a is a great tool and WhatsApp is a great tool. And I'm not sure if these areas that are not served by journalism are information poor in any way. Mm -hmm. um, and so generally speaking, I feel like that is also going to change. And I think more and more people will get access to more and more information. Uh, while at the same time uh, having a lot of misinformation to deal with. And for like journalists who are kind of getting into it, let's say, um, are they in their first few years of getting started or are trying to find their footing in this really confusing landscape, uh, any advice on how they can 
uh, form their own framework, like you said, like uh, just to kind of navigate uh, this or like find what to them means a meaningful day at work or a meaningful project that they're working on? Well, my advice is try different things out and go to different organization, organizations, cycle through different organizations, um, develop new skills. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote a piece once called Five Strategies for Journalists, which I think is still true. I wrote it three years ago. So in that, I said things like, um, you know, don't don't uh, stress about your vanity CV. Uh, it, you know, what you're doing might look good, but, it, you know, if you keep doing it for more than a year or two, you are no longer learning anything. So make sure you horizontal growth is very important. So uh, it, it vertical growth, you don't always have to go for, okay, I'm now a correspondent. Now I'm going to be a senior correspondent, then a special correspondent, you know, that kind of a principal correspondent. So yeah. it's, it's uh, you don't have to do that. You can, you can go sideways. You can learn different things. So long, so long as you're learning things, uh, specific skills, you should be okay. And uh, don't do anything that a bot can do, mm-hmm. is what they say. <laughs> So please don't get into this. Don't work in a desk for too long where your job is to recycle wire copy by adding yeah. a few tweets and publishing it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So eventually that bo- the bot is anyway doing that. Uh, and eventually, you know, they'll be doing it in at scale in, yeah. in organizations. Thanks for listening to the In Old News podcast. If you like what you heard, you can find more interviews in our newsletter at inoldnews.substack.com. That's inoldnews.substack.com. You can also find us all over social media at inoldnews. And if there's anyone you'd like us to interview, send us your recommendations. Till next time.